You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's Curtains Up on another episode of West of Broadway, a celebration of musical theater on the West Coast. I'm Will Armstrong. And I'm Wendy Rosoff. And we are so grateful for you to join us again for a wonderful conversation about musical theater in Los Angeles. Um, so today, Wendy, I'm so excited because we're going to be talking with a special guest lecturer and um, educator at the Pasadena Playhouse. Yes. Um, it's really, really cool. I'm, and Pasadena Playhouse is one of my favorite theaters in town. Me too. I love it so much. And this conversation, the idea of this conversation brings out the total theater nerd in me. I cannot wait to pick our guest. Yes, um, his class is called The Broadway Musical and America, and I feel like it, it combines two of my favorite things. One, politics, and two, musical theater, and so I'm really excited. Our guest today is Adam Epstein, and he is a very successful Broadway producer and um, a very interesting guy. Um, I've been doing a lot of research on him, and I can't wait to introduce him to everyone. But first, how are you doing um, on, like, it's been a month and a half of a lockdown. Yeah. How's everything going? Uh, good. I'm fine, you know, ups and downs, mm -hmm. uh, but I feel good, I'm healthy, um, me and my loved ones are safe and good, and you know, so just living my best life, and you? I um, tried to cut my hair today, <laughs> and it did not go well, and um, oh, last week, okay, and I'm becoming a survivalist, okay, so I have this amazing lemon tree in my, in my yard, and I make lemonade, and I use it for cooking and everything, and I love it, and I bought chickens. I have four chickens that I'm raising so I can raise my own eggs. Can we talk about what you named those chickens? Well, okay, uh, so... Um, if you listen to the show, I, I often will work RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race into my narrative. Yes. Um, I've been doing it since we started the show. Um, I'm obsessed with it. I love. I look forward to it. I've seen every episode um, m many times. Um, I named them uh, Katya, Trixie, Shangela, and Heidi, which are four drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. That um, and each one of them has a little personality, which is very um, it, like they remind me. Of these. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait me. to meet these guys once this is all over. Um, it's okay. It's Cause you're a vegetarian and you have been for years yes. and I'm an omnivore and I am experiencing Having some, some issues, some, some guilt. You know, I didn't realize how affectionate and intelligent and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's making me rethink a couple of things. 
Yeah. I so, mean, um, maybe this will be yet another big change that comes about due to quarantine. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But I'm open to it. I'm, Anything I, is uh, possible. Exactly. And so, and then I think once I get, because my coop, I ordered, they're in a container now because they're so little, but yeah. I ordered a legit coop and I'm going to be building that uh, next week. Wait, you but have to build once, it? Well, I mean, put it together. Oh, you know, okay. I mean, it, it's, it's like an a, Ikea coop it's situation? A coop, it's, a, it's a coop kit. Uh, <laughs> a coop kit. Of course. <laughs> and which is fitting because we're all cooped up over here. So I'm going to be legit cooped mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Um, and so there's that. And then once that gets situated, I have this plan to, I want to, because I live in a little house and we have a flat roof and I want to put a structure on the roof and I want to buy one or two um, wading pools and fill them with soil and have vegetable gardens on the roof. I'm becoming oh. a, <laughs> I'm a doomsday prepper. <laughs> That is amazing. I want to grow my own produce and I, or, and vegetables, and I want to raise my own uh, chicken eggs. And uh, and like I said, I have my lemons, and then I'll be like, and then I'll just, oh, and then my friend Gary, he keeps bees, and he told me he'd give me bees. No, that's where I draw the line. No I'm, bees. I'm scared of bees, too. You know what? Bees sting dogs, too, if that does anything for you. Oh, yeah. My, one of my dogs got stung in the mouth one time and she swelled up so yeah, bad. Yeah, Bruno, so, yeah. my Yorkie, got stung on the tail one time when we were in Ojai at the Ojai Valley Inn and Spa. We were having like a very zhuzhi weekend and we went to like the little Meow Meow Lavender Gardens and Bruno was like romping through the lavender and all of a sudden he was like Rah! and he came out of there and like was running in circles. We get back to our, you know, like yummy Shangri-La room and Bruno's tail was like a ball. And for the rest of the weekend, it became all about Bruno's tail and nursing him back to yeah. health. Yeah, that's, I mean. No bees. Got, yeah, okay, no, no bees. All right, but yeah, I'll find, yeah. So but I, I feel like I have my hands full already. I need to yeah, stop. Yeah, you do. <laughs> I mean, idle hands are the devil's playground, so I, I like to keep my hands busy, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> so um, I think we're ready to bring on our guest. I'm so excited. Let's do it. Adam Epstein, welcome to Western Broadway. Thank you for having me. Hi, Will. Hi, Wendy. Hello. We are so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, uh, to be joining you and talking about all things musical theater, right? What else? Yes. Exactly. What else? Well, I would love to hear a little bit about your background. Sure. So I have something of a hybrid background. Uh, where I am now is not where I once was, but I still keep myself... Uh, I guess once a theater boy, always a theater boy. Um, I um, basically, in summation, I was originally a musical theater performer at NYU, and I but I, but but uh, midway through about sophomore year, I went and got my undergraduate degree in political theory because I always wow. had a tremendous interest in political science, and I didn't want to be a performer, and I thought I was going to go the route I kind of am going now, but I still had that irresistible tug toward the the arts and especially the theater and I had to find a way to channel it so when I graduated rather than going the acting route I took an unpaid casting internship at what was known as the Johnson Lyft casting agency oh. remember Vinny and Vinny uh, Lyft and Jeffrey Johnson yeah they were kind of like yeah. mentors to me and it was an unpaid internship I was right out of college I applied uh, heaven knows why they took me then it wasn't like I didn't need an offer but I I I really enjoyed my time there and learned a lot about that side of the business. And one day Jeffrey Johnson came into the room. I was sitting in filing pictures and 
doing my little chores, if you will. And he said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I don't want to be a casting director. (laughs) (laughs) director. I just, I just wasn't what I want to do. He said, you should be a producer. He goes, you've got Moxie. I like your way. Let me make some calls. And he ended up helping me get a job with the late, great Marty Richards. Marty Richards, uh, who produced uh, the original Chicago, Sweeney Todd, like Kaja Full, Grand Hotel, on and on, and the movie of Chicago too. And I joined the firm as a young production associate when they were working on the musical, The Life, the site called The Musical, which was the 1996-97 Broadway season. And it just felt like I had found my calling, you Mm -hmm. know, it felt that I could uh, be in a creative profession. I uh, was able to use my mind. I mean, I didn't necessarily want to be a businessman per se, but it, it sort of certainly built those tools for me. And uh, after about a year and a few months there, I was like, I think I'm going to try to do this on my own. I'm 23. What do I have to lose? Sounds totally insane. And I um, associate produced a roundabout production of A View from the Bridge. It was the revival that Anthony LaPaglia, a pre-West Wing Allison Janney, and a sadly uh, deceased Brittany Murphy was in, Mm. uh, directed by the great Michael Mayer. And it turned out to be a tremendous hit. I, I joined the team. And uh, uh, I was off and running, and that, that led to, don't ask me how, through most of my 20s, just one thing after the other. I went up doing Amadeus in the West End and on Broadway, and then subsequently I did the Boston first national sit-down of I Love Your Perfect Now Change, and that, that led me to another Arthur Miller. I did The Crucible with Liam Neeson and Laura Linney, and along the way, I was blessed to uh, meet a mentor who also passed this year, not from COVID, but also from actually a lung-related illness partially Margot Lyon mm-hmm. um, and uh, she was a legend in the theater actually it wasn't lung related I'm sorry but she had had lung problems but it's just curious that she died shortly before yeah. COVID hit but anyway she had the idea sick with the flu one day that hairspray might make a good idea as a musical and I know I'm kind of fast forwarding through this but then she called me up and said uh, we had been talking for about six months and she had really wanted me to have a chance to produce with her and, uh, you know, I had a lot of credits at that point, but I wanted to do a big musical. And she said, how about, or what about Hairspray? And I said, yeah, let's mm-hmm. do it. It just felt right. And I was there from the beginning, put together the team. And, and you know, and that was really the game changer because at 27 going on 28, I sort of had mm-hmm. opportunities I wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and then I was able to do The Wedding Singer. And then I did another John Waters musical, Cry Baby, mm-hmm. uh, which was as big a flop as Hairspray was a hit. And I'm <laughs> proud to say that because John Waters famously said during the Cry Baby experience, well, we've been to the top of the mountain and the bottom of the valley. <laughs> <laughs> and I love John, still a good friend. And you know what? It was, had Cry Baby not, uh, had, had it, that experience not been so rough, I might not have hit the pause button because I did at that point. I've been producing for like 12 years. I was 34, obviously not old, wow. I'm 45 now, but I really realized there were other things I wanted to do and, I, and my, I didn't love the game anymore. Not that I didn't love the theater, I didn't love the game of producing. Mm. And I make that distinction, which is why I think when I ended up going back to graduate school and getting a master's degree in American studies, and which was wonderful and kind of, it continuing to build my life as a, I became a writer for various websites. And one thing led to the other and I got into the world of political media. I realized there was a reason that happened because there's sort of, I want to sit at the intersection, I guess, of politics and media or politics and entertainment. Sure. And because I went and really thought about what the musical meant as an American art form and how to frame that as part of American studies in academia is basically defined as a sort of study of American culture, politics, and history writ large. So you end up with this sort of 
look at it. You know, somebody might study the indigenous movement in New Mexico in the 1800s, or somebody might study, you know, why, what does it mean? What are feminist politics? I mean, anything. Somebody yeah. might study the history of blackface in American culture, for example, you know, and musical theater fits in as what they call performance studies. And a lot of the people who nurtured me intellectually when I was at Brown, which is where I went to graduate school, were like, you know, this is an unexplored area. And a lot of academics who've done it a lot of academics haven't done it. A lot of people don't have, it's, it's something that requires such a deep experience, not just a theory. Right. You know, cause that's what you have to know anyway. So that kind of sparked a plug and that's where I'm driving. And it led me to uh, not only my current career in political media, but when I got back from graduate school, Danny Feldman from passing a playhouse called me, and this is back in 2017 and said, how about putting some kind of class together? Basically the musical theater, the study of, that's why I call it the Broadway musical in America. And it looks at, the musical from Oklahoma to today, but also reminds people, you know, how the musical evolved and how our yep. politics and culture both informed those musicals and how the musicals reflected the anxieties of those times. Yeah, it's sort of a wonderful two-way street. So. That's it's amazing. fascinating. No, absolutely. I know it's a lot in one sentence, but I, I figured I would get there. You know. No, and thank you so much for the detailed uh, description. I mean, I mean, it, it's. I have such an appreciation for and a love of musical theater, but also I love this country and I love politics. And right now I'm fascinated. I don't think there's a time when MSNBC or, or CNN isn't playing in my house because I'm just fascinated with, but to see how uh, through time, how the theater and entertainment is, it's like holding a mirror up to what's going on at our country. And, and to be able to break that down, I, it's like, this is, such an exciting so originally was this supposed to be uh an in-person class that they were offering uh well it was conceived as an in-person class we i taught it the fall of 2017 the spring of 2018 and the spring of 2019 uh we danny and i in the playhouse actually had been talking about doing a digital version just so it would have a broader reach mm -hmm. and we had not planned i had not planned on doing it in person this spring just because I have other media commitments and it, it required me to be there every Monday night, although I loved every minute of it, but COVID hit. And he said, what about zooming it? And I said, that's fabulous because a, you know, we can already get many more people than we would get in the room. We did it. Plus, you know, getting to Pasadena Monday nights. I mean, we always did well with it, but there were a lot of people that wanted to take it, but couldn't commit to let's say 11 or 12 Mondays. And if you're not going to be there in person, what's the point with zoom? Although it's, uh, not required it would it's preferred that you're zooming while i'm doing it if you've paid for the class you can go back and watch it mm -hmm. wow. so yeah so that's something that people should know that like people worry about the commitment of it and by the way it's only an hour every tuesday night and i mean zoom guests in and the lectures are stimulating and as much as we can interact there's gonna be a lot of people so i won't be able to do as much question and answer but what's great about that is is if you miss it you can watch it at your own leisure as long as you've paid for the class and that's an important point uh, to stress, so, you know, we've had a very good reception so far, but we want to keep selling and I don't want people to think like, oh, you know, I don't want to pay for this in this three classes. You won't miss it. Good yeah. No, that's that incredible. Good. I actually, I, I read through your syllabus and I want to take it. Take it. I, I, I really want to. This, it's really I mean, a lot this... of fun and, and I, you know, and I kind of, you see the way I crafted, you know, I, Oklahoma being the game changer. Yep that everybody knows about some of these beaten to death motifs about, oh, song and dance are integrated, all of which is true. But it was a game changer for what American culture meant mm -hmm. at the time and where the world was, where America sat at the world. Because when Oklahoma opened in 1943, the country was at war. And Oklahoma 
right? Was like the arrival and discovery, so the story tells you, of, a, of impending statehood, right? Of community, of a new addition. You know, we know we belong to the land, the land we belong to is grand. And that channeled the kind of uh, patriotism that was infusing the body politic at the moment. Yeah. You know, and people went to that show almost with patriotic uh, duty, almost as a calling. Ooh. So while the musical could be viewed as, you know, who, what, which guy's going to take Lori to the box social, the musical is a lot about a lot more than that. And people in war torn America or war time America, I should say, look to it as a kind of solace, yeah. you know, a, mm -hmm. a refuge. So it has a place both in the form and the politics, which is a great way to start when you're thinking about what the American musical. Um, means. Yeah, I mean, so many a few of the, uniquely American art forms, you know. I was going to say so many of the musicals, not only that you've produced, but also that I saw listed on your syllabus, in some way or another, are a reflection of the time of politics, even Annie, you know, Herbert Hoover, um, you know, Absolutely. that period of time, the it. Great Depression, um, the life and Correct. everything that was going on in yep. New York during that time. I'm a native yeah. New Yorker. And yeah. so, I mean- I, I lived there 16 years, so I'm okay. not a native New Yorker, but I, it's certainly in the, it, well, maybe not the DNA, I guess it's in the blood, right? Yeah. Yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, and Hairspray, of course, is based on the real segregation in Baltimore. Absolutely. I mean, it's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, John Waters came up with the characters from Hairspray for the original, original film. It's had so many iterations. The right. original film with Divine in 88 in his bedroom by watching the Buddy Dean show. The Buddy Dean yep. show is what the Corny Collins show is. And uh, American Bandstand had show, that show out of Philadelphia had replicas in, in Cleveland and Detroit. All the cities had their own little local show. And you'd come home and there literally was uh, a segregated uh, uh, setup, and there was a Negro Day. That was a real thing, yep. and there was a uh, you know who's going to get the crown, you know, type of dance. And so you know, and you could also see John said like you know the sort of hormonal love among the you know you could see the the girl and the guy kind of swooning, you know, hence the kind of Link Larkin character. So it's all based in something, and it sort of feels like it's imagery. But he 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 was watching those those shows in his bedroom and creating that, that, that gallery of uh, lovable characters. So you, the, the Broadway musical in America, you're uniquely qualified for many reasons to be teaching this, but the politics part, doesn't that come, for, like, isn't that ingrained in part of your family? Don't you come from a political family? Well, I come from, it's interesting, somewhat. Um, my mom's father, my grand, paternal grandfather, uh, who, my grandmother is 100, she's still with us. Her husband, who died at 90, was a very prominent judge and philanthropist in Miami, where I'm from. But yes, he was a delegate to Adlai Stevenson of the Democratic National Convention in 1956. Amazing. He was Hubert Humphrey's 1968 Dade County campaign manager, Hubert Humphrey, who sadly did not beat Nixon that year. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and he helped uh, nurture the careers of many of the Florida politicians. I worked for Senator Bob Graham because my grandfather helped me get elected governor, a guy named Leroy Collins, Lawton Childs. He was an, a who's who in, in, in Florida politics, although he himself never ran. He was, you know, both, both a judge and activist and, you know, part of the, you know, great what you'd call FDR Democrat of the old school, you know, mm -hmm. wanted, in those days, although 
you know, the South was largely Democratic. It was Democratic for racial reasons, but the Democrats held control most of those places. And Democrats, as long as you had a D by your name, you could have a better chance of getting elected in Florida than a Republican, believe it or not. Even if you were to the left of, you know, the kind of conservative prevailing view that many Southern Democrats had then. If you're a Republican, you know, ever since the end of Reconstruction, you had no chance. That R by your name was lethal, which is why if you look even into the 90s, you'll see still Democratic senators in Louisiana and Alabama and all that because it was just an ingrained thing. Mm. Registered Democrats in many of those Southern places outnumbered registered Republicans. The fact that they're so deep red, and though they were going red in presidential elections, they were still sending Democrats to the House and Senate. It's fascinating. It sounds. It sounds yes. like there's as there's. It sounds like there's as much theater in politics as there is the politics that you were saying in theater. Well, my God, I mean, I mean, I think that uh, for better or worse, and it's not actually for better. It's for worse. Trump's ability to perform has been the chief reason he has been able to survive, and I believe that. But more than anything. And although there's a lot, is a stew of it uh, from race and gender to populist backlash to Hillary's bad campaign to all those things. But Trump, it, whether he meant to or not, exploited what I think has been the very, um, the unintended consequences of celebrity culture, because that's what he is. Mm -hmm. Although we don't like him, those of us <laughs> who are decent minded, that includes a lot of Republicans, he is a TV star. Yeah. And a lot of people in an uninformed country saw him as, okay, well, maybe he can make a change. He was on The Apprentice. I mean, remember, I always tell people who follow this, you're too smart. Don't overthink it. Politics is a broad brush business. And it's often, sadly, not a policy contest. Yeah. Terrifying. Terrifying. That's why we are where, that's why we are. Where we are. That's why the imagery, listen, since the age of television, imagery looks, all of that matters, which is why, you know, when people say, you got to take this position or that position, I always say, if you've got the stardom of Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, you have a winner. I don't care what the hell they say. I mean, they can't say just anything they want. But, right. but what I mean is when you have a, a candidate like John Kerry and to a certain extent, Hillary Clinton that have problems in selling their brand, yeah. it's like anything. It's not going to be an easy climb, you know? This is an unusual time now, so we'll see what happens. But Trump's an incumbent, but overseeing the worst economy and obviously a pandemic. And Joe Biden is less than ideal, but he's qualified, experienced. He's got great character, probably poised to win, but I, we don't know. Well, I feel like I was just having this conversation right before we started this interview. I feel like if he surrounds himself, if he pads himself with power players. And I hear that there's, you know, he's his committee uh, for uh, the vice president. He's already putting that together. And I feel like it's going to be a woman. I mean, that's what everything points yes. towards, whether it's an African-American woman or Caucasian, whoever it is. Um, you know, if he pads himself with the right people, I feel like that is going to empower him so much in this election. That's right. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think sadly to lose this many people, and watch an economy 10 years of economic growth crater in a month or two is awful and the human toll can't be minimized but you know if it proves to be the undoing of an incumbent president as manifestly unfit as donald trump then i think we have something to be proud of you know I not proud that this disease happened proud right. that he exactly. has been unseated for the listeners i don't want to be misquoted right. Yes. Of course. But I secretly love that this has become a bit of a political podcast. I'm for so into moment. it. I'm so into well, well, it. We listen. I mean, I, what I, and again, I don't, I don't, for the record, when I teach the class, obviously, 
mm-hmm. uh, take political positions, sure. but I but I do frame them in the time, uh, you know, per the class. When company comes along in 1970, what ends up happening is the culture has anxiety, right? The anxiety of that musical, though it has quite a bit of hope in it, but the sort of urban angst of what it meant to be a New Yorker in 1970, yeah. this culture was reflecting back the anxiety of Vietnam and post-civil rights and eventually Watergate four years later of a, of a society that from World War II till about the late 60s was robust in its economic growth. Standard of living was increasing, wages were rising, and we seemed to be coming what we had always hoped to be, the real beacon of hope, you know, the, the American exceptionalism we all hear about. And that became distressed by the late 60s, early 70s. And it's no accident, I don't think, whether it's being reflected back or the anxiety is being telegraphed by the audience or by the creators that Sondheim embarked on the companies and night musics and follies and Pacific overtures. I mean, who writes a musical about imperialism in Japan but Stephen Sondheim? And, you know, a macabre uh, killer seeking revenge, you know, in Victorian England. I mean, all those things become... um, reflections which is why annie's in the course because by 1977 right there's a major recession going on we've had watergate we've had the end of vietnam the last helicopter leaves saigon in april of uh, 75 and in comes you know cotton candy on a stick to say right. the sun will come out tomorrow while smartly still depicting social satire hooverville's is a brilliant number yeah. you know telegraphing that's a real sharp political satire and but you know there was something not only because it's such a well-made musical in book and score, but about a, a little moppet of red hair and a red dress, a little girl with her dog standing center stage, no irony, singing, you know, just thinking about tomorrow. It's only a day away. There was something that really felt like to audiences then when I was only three, but for people who saw it in its day, you know, like an oasis, yeah. you know, and, 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 and a, bit, a bit of hope in a very dark time. So again, it goes, it's not one thing. Uh, theme or the other, but you can sort of trace American anxiety either in the musical or as a response to it. Annie was a response to it, you know, and then, and then of course, the British invasion comes along. Our champion dies in 1980, which is not just symbolic. I mean, that was the end of that era. era. You know, yep. we lose Bob Fosse and Michael Bennett in the same year. Of course, that's 1987, but, you know, thankfully, Bennett still had um, dream girls to do but you know most of their best work was behind them in the british mega musical sort of as i say recolonizes the colonies mm. and comes in and sweeps in and becomes the mainstay in broadway and that's all you had in those days you know you had you had other show you had dream girls just in the park with george at lepage at into the woods of course you know you had big river and a lot of things in the 80s but you know you see that trend and then you see the 90s go into, you know, the explosion of Rent and Ragtime yeah. and bringing a noise, bringing a funk and sort of the musical Kiss of Spider-Woman, Tommy, all sorts of different things happening up until 9-11 happens, right? And then Mamma Mia makes it to America right after that. And then come the producers in Hairspray. And they were returned to what felt like the golden age of the musical comedy when not just New York, but the country needed it most, especially Hairspray. But the producers was one, you know, one hell of a knockout too because it was the one-two punch of showbiz gold and Mel Brooks, yep. you know, and the classic musical kind of reinvigorated with two, um, two immensely appealing stars at the center. So, yeah. I could talk Adam, to you all day long. Seriously, your passion for musical theater just warms my heart. And it's, it's <laughs> well, amazing. Well, I've been a Broadway baby a long time. Yeah. yeah. And it's, long well, same well, here. And it, it's so nice to talk to a kindred soul. Even all yeah. the way back to the beginning of our conversation, Johnson Liff and Hughes Moss were my two um, 
champions. Julie Hughes and Barry Moss. They were my two champions, two casting house That's, champions when I they were the They began. were the out. That was really then. They were the two biggies. Right? I know. And I, I was so fortunate. And I haven't heard their names in such a long time. And when you said Johnson and Liff, it just brought me back to this whole... Listen, Johnson Liff, you know, you may remember this. Before they were the go-to for Angela Weber and Karen Aganash, they cast the original Wiz. They cast yeah. the original uh, Amadeus. They cast the original Dreamgirls. They yeah. cast the original Dracula, Frank Langella. I mean, they were, you know, and they actually, their last show was The Producers. That was the end. I mean, they mm -hmm. went through all that era, you know, it was right before Hairspray because we started developing it and we had already signed up with Bernie Telsey. But I was pretty close to like, you know, want to say, well, shouldn't Johnson Lyft do this? But nonetheless, yeah. they they were they were legends, and they came out of David Merrick's casting office. David Merrick had an in-house casting office, and they were the uh, associates for Otto Windsor, a woman named Jerry Windsor. Wow, uh, I, I didn't know that. First name. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and and also Christian Slater's mother was a Mary Jo, right? Mary, yeah, was yeah. a casting director on Broadway with them too. It's funny, yeah. huh? Yeah, a lot of history. Crazy. I know. Yeah, I've. I mean, I've followed David Merrick and his history for quite some time. Although I haven't, I've read excerpts of the Abominable Showman, but I've not you read the whole be. thing. I know. I'm. Right. I want to. We're actually uh, a friend and I are crafting a parody musical of something, and and one of the roles is crafted after David Merrick. And so I've been going back in. I have to. I have to pick up the book. But um, you know, my first very large. Uh, job when I started was 42nd Street, which is actually how Will and I initially met. We did the Broadway revival, but I actually started I with the it. European tour. Um, right. Of the, well, then you know all about that was Merrick's creation. Yes. And one of the first things that happened was we got sat down first day of rehearsal and, you know, the original production stage manager of uh, the Broadway 42nd Street, the original had become the director of this European tour and right. the original dance captain was the choreographer. Right. And so we got sat down and got told, you know, it was like a fireside chat of David Merrick's stories. So I've been kind of obsessed. And Randy with that. Skinner restaged that. Well. Randy Skin Randy did the revival. Yep. Um, and of course, many many iterations before sure. and since. Well, there's my 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 favorite David Merrick story about Forty Second Street is in that Forty Second Street you remember ran from 1980 to 1989. Yeah. Fam of the Opera. It opened at the Winter Garden and then it transferred uh, to the um, uh, Majestic. Okay, but Phantom of the Opera came in. And, you know, and they, and they, and then they moved it to the St. James mm -hmm. and Phantom of the Opera was sold out from here to kingdom come. And you remember in 40 century was in its final year after having obviously a huge run. And there would always be a line out in front of Phantom of people waiting for just for tickets and, and, and everything yeah. returns. So David Merrick took the usual eight o'clock curtain, moved the 42nd street curtain to eight 30. Cause it was across the St. James is across the street from majestic. This is why he was the best and took out an ad with himself in the picture, right? We don't have this anymore, but it's my favorite thing in the world. Pointing his finger, say, David Merrick is holding the curtain for you. Wow. 42nd Street now at 8.30 and he ran the show another year. Wow. Because he, he, used, he said, hey, I can sell enough tickets at the booth. I have enough inventory, TDF, tourists. Guess what? All those phantom refugees are going to come across the street and say, what do I do? It's eight o'clock. I didn't, you know, you can't get it. It's 55 and then you've already missed everything. He said, come across the street. What a shrewd move. How <laughs> amazing is that? David Margolik of St. Louis, Missouri. Yes. Yes. Incredible. Can we do a quick lightning round with you? Quick question. Oh, sure. All right. Are you ready? Lightning round. I'm ready. Lightning. Here we go. 
Your favorite musical of all time? Gypsy. Your favorite movie of all time? Uh, a toss-up between Goodfellas and The Wizard of Oz. Ooh. A performer who inspired you growing up? Carol Burnett. <laughs> who would you like to work with? In any capacity? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. That's a good one. Oh, my God. Um, I would like to work with Jonathan Groff. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Why? Because I'm so impressed that he is a genuine Broadway baby, but can go and do something as brilliant as Mindhunters on Netflix or Mindhunter and be equally as compelling at that. I think he, and, 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 and I think he moves effortlessly between worlds. Mm -hmm. And um, if I ever go back to the theater, it's going to be as someone who adapts classic plays or, but, or as the director, like Hal Prince did. Yeah. And he is a kind of actor I would love to work with because I understand, I feel that he's so, malleable and his choices are so interesting um and he broke that mold i mean you could see him as seymour little shop bars and then he's in some netflix series about serial killers i mean it's very rare that you see that kind of range so you know it's a tough it's a, probably other people i'm forgetting right now that's a good one no i love that but I, I i he would be someone i would either cast if i were directing or hire if i were producing or work yeah. with i think he it seems like a genuinely nice guy. I know a lot of people don't know him, but he also seems sweet. So anyway. Great. I love that. Um, okay. So name a Barbie dream project that you would like to work on. I guess that would be theater. I know that you're away from it from now, but yeah. what, what is something? I mean, I, one of the things I'd like to do, because I am, uh, an, I am uh, uh, an English major and a political science major. I was actually political theory and literature, and my American studies emphasis was on the American lit works of the 19th century. There are classic American pieces, and I mean, most famously, The Heiress by Henry James was mm -hmm. Washington Square, but I would like to adapt and or direct something, uh, some of the classic American lit by Hawthorne or Melville or even other authors and make a really sexy play version out of them, cast it with top tier talent and, uh, and have it done on Broadway because it's seldom done. And they would, and some of those, again, adapted correctly would be, would be great plays. And I've been inspired to do it by Richard Eyre, who directed my version of The Crucible, who ran the National Theater, because mm -hmm. he often takes Ibsen, took the beautiful Ibsen play Ghosts. When I was, li I lived in London for two years. I left that out, 2014 to 16, because um, I was engaged and living over there. And I saw, obviously, tons of theater and produced over there. He did Ibsen's Ghosts, which he both adapted and directed with Leslie Manville. 90 minutes, it was... It won all the Olivier's, and I believe there would be a place to do that. That'd be something that, as much as I love musicals, I did a lot of plays in my life. And yeah. I'm a man of, I love text, and I learned from Peter Hall and Richard Eyre, and I, I love English and I language, that I would love to work on something like that. I don't know exactly which one, but even if I was the co-collaborator who directed it, I mean, my God, doesn't Hester Prynne need to be on Broadway? Come on. Yeah. Yes, she does. <laughs> yeah. All right. What was, I think you touched on this briefly, but what was your first big gig? What was the first gig that kind of like turned the needle for you? The Life. I mean, The Life was, I'm not a full producer on it. I was a production associate or producing associate, whatever they called it. I mean, View from the Bridge was my first gig on my own when mm -hmm. I was an associate producer and build as such on the title page like that. Um, but that was really what set it off. And then of course- you know, Amadeus was my first Tony nomination, so that led to something else. But then, of course, nothing could compete with the magic of Hairspray because a hit of that magnitude yeah. opens up so many doors. I mean, Hairspray opened up doors to me in my media world that have nothing to do with Hairspray. You know, it's just such a, you don't realize at the time, you know, that a hit musical really does, and one that lived on like that has continued to be so 
evergreen, you know, yeah. it, it remains sort of fresh in people's minds. And so, um, but I would say the life was like the, obviously the, the thing that got me in the, in the, in the river, in the pond, whatever you want to call it. Okay. What piece, this is the last one. What piece of advice would you offer to your younger self? <sighs> Everything changes mm. and enjoy that. And it's yes. important. The only thing we, only permanence is impermanence. So ride the wave and know that and, and maybe slow down a little bit. I mean, I, I love that I was ambitious, but there were parts of myself, I think that I needed to work on, uh, not terribly deficient parts, but we're all imperfect. And I would yeah. have liked to have had more time to breathe. And as I've gotten yeah. older, you know, though I'm no less busy, I manage my space and self care in a better way. You know, but when you're 24 and you're a Broadway producer, you don't even know what the hell you're doing or how you got there. I'm not sure, even as much of an old soul I am, I'm not sure how much introspection could even have gotten me there that I otherwise would have needed through life's experiences. Right. Well, Adam, Adam Epstein, you are a delight. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. And if you, if you are looking for something to do one hour a week for 11 weeks from May 12th to July 12th, 21st, check out PasadenaPlayhouse.org and sign up for this class. And you'll see Wendy and I there too, I hope. Yeah, I can't oh, wait. I, thank you. I hope you guys take the class. Thank you for having me. This oh, is yeah. a great um, podcast. I look forward to listening to other episodes. And thank you so much. About it. Yeah, and I look forward to meeting you in person when this is all said and done. I know, once we can, <laughs> and I hope, to, as I said, hope to see you both in the class. Everyone listening, take this class. It's eleven weeks of total joy. No uh, previous knowledge required. No grades. So I know people like that. Trust me, for me too. I have to teach with grades. It's a pleasure not to have to have the drama of that. It'll Absolutely. just be learning and enrichment and engagement and fun. Yeah. Um, Adam Epstein, thank you so much. This Thanks, Will. Thanks, Wendy. You take take care. care. Stay safe. You too. Bye, Bye, guys. I know I say this every time, but holy <laughs> cow. I have, it's, that was an awesome interview, and he is a genius. I, oh my I know. God. I said it while we were in the interview, but I, I literally could talk to him all day and all night. He, he got like my, my juices flowing. Mm -hmm. I love how much he knows and how... Um, how just fascinating it is to put the pieces together of the state of the world and politics and culture and theater and how it ref one reflects the other. I mean, it's just, it's so powerful. Yeah, I feel like I'm busted because I love musical theater so much and I love politics so much, but it's just like, I, for, he articulated it in such yeah. a beautiful way that I was just like, I'm jacked I'm up. I need to learn more. I need yeah. to study more. I need to, I, I want to be able to just pop, 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 stats and figures and numbers and names and dates. And wow. Are we going to take his class? Oh, I would love Let's to. Let's take his I class. Yes. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. And if you're listening to this, it is PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Sign up for that class. Like immediately, <laughs> if not sooner, people. <laughs> it is wonderful. Yeah. Oh my God. What a great, great guy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This yeah. is fun. Thank so you funny. again, Wendy. It's so much fun. And it's Thank lovely you. to see your face. I miss you. <laughs> I miss you too. I miss you too. And, and I miss everybody listening and, and watching and stuff like that. So yeah. Thank you guys so, for watching. Yeah. And um, so to keep up with us, oh, like I said, our website is... Um, westofbroadwaypodcast.com and it should, be, it should be launching very, very soon. But until then, we're at broadwaypodcastnetwork.com and we're West of Broadway and we're there with like 45 or 50 other incredible podcasts. Uh, so uh, check us out and check out all of our, the rest of our family. And you can and also find us on broadwayworld.com. 
who we love. Thank you, Broadway World. So for much. Uh, sharing all of our content. Yeah. And you can find us on our social media channels. I'm Will Armstrong PR. I'm Wendy underscore Rosoff. Yeah. And um, as always, if you're looking for us, you can find us just, just west, west of Broadway. Of Broadway. <laughs> it's your big dramatic breath beforehand. I never know how long it's going to be. <laughs> just. <laughs> all right. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay, <laughs>